Section 41, Introduction On February the 1st, 1831, a sleigh pulled up in front of the Kirtland store belonging to A. Sidney Gilbert and Newell K. Whitney. In the sleigh were Joseph Smith, Emma Smith, Sidney Rigdon, and Edward Partridge. Joseph sprang up the steps of the store and walked into the man behind the counter and said, Quote, Newell K. Whitney, thou art the man. You have prayed me here, now what do you want of me? Unquote. Shortly before Joseph Smith came to Kirtland, Newell K. Whitney and his wife had seen a bright cloud over their home. As they gazed up at this strange phenomenon, a voice spoke out of the cloud and said, quote, Prepare to receive the word of the Lord, for it is coming. Unquote. Since then they had prayed many times that Joseph would come to Kirtland, so here he was. The prophet had come to Kirtland at a critical time. Many people were joining the church either on the basis of the testimonies of friends or after reading enough pages of the Book of Mormon to gain a personal testimony. Nevertheless, they came into the church with such a scanty knowledge of the gospel that they were still following their previous form of worship. This included physical contortions, attributed to the Holy Ghost, of course, swooning, wild gestures, or loud exclamations such as, Praise the Lord! Joseph felt the most critical need was an ample supply of the Book of Mormon so the people could study the fullness of the gospel which it contained. Joseph therefore frantically wrote to Martin Harris and Palmyra to immediately hasten to Kirtland and bring with him all the copies of the Book of Mormon he had. The missionaries had been so anxious to spread the message that they had often given copies away. Joseph knew Martin Harris had to be paid back the $3,000 to cover the cost of the printing. Joseph therefore stated that copies of the Book of Mormon should never be sold for less than 10 shillings, which would be about $2.50. While waiting for Martin Harris to arrive, Joseph had to settle a special problem. This was the Christian communism or common stock which Sidney Rigdon had introduced before he was converted. Under this system or order, anybody who was a member was free to take anything they happened to want from anybody else. The theory was that everything belonged to everybody. So each person was encouraged to feel free to take whatever they had the urge to need or want. This not only created deep resentment, but sometimes provoked threatened violence. Joseph went to the Lord for immediate guidance on February the 4th, 1831, and this is what the Lord told him. Now we come to the text of section 41. Hearken and hear, O ye my people, saith the Lord and your God, ye whom I delight to bless with the greatest of all blessings, ye that hear me, and ye that hear me not, will I curse, that have professed my name with the heaviest of all cursings. This verse is addressed to all the people and emphasizes that those who listen and obey will receive marvelous blessings, while those who claim to be members of the church but ignore the commandments of the Lord will receive severe cursings. Hearken, O ye elders of my church whom I have called. Behold, I give unto you a commandment, that ye shall assemble yourselves together to agree upon my word. 
This verse is addressed to the elders of the church who are commanded to assemble together and come to an understanding and agreement concerning the law which the Lord will give them for the people. And by the prayer of your faith ye shall receive my law, that ye may know how to govern my church and have all things right before me. The Lord says he wants his people to receive this law with a prayer of faith so they will conscientiously govern the members of the church and see that the law is honored and maintained as the Lord reveals it. And I will be your ruler when I come. And behold, I come quickly, and ye shall see that my law is kept. The law the Savior is giving the church is the means by which he will govern the people when he returns to take over the earth. Meanwhile, it is the responsibility of the elders of the church to see that the law is honored and maintained with strictness. The Lord does not intend to delay his coming, and in terms of God's time he is coming quickly. He that receiveth my law and doeth it, the same is my disciple. And he that saith he receiveth it, and doeth it not, the same is not my disciple, and shall be cast out from among you. It is one thing to embrace God's law, and quite another thing to obey it. Only those who honor and obey it will be counted disciples of the Lord. Those who do not are counted as apostates. They are not disciples, and shall be removed from among the members of the church. For it is not meet that the things which belong to the children of the kingdom should be given to them that are not worthy, or to dogs, or the pearls to be cast before swine. There are great blessings for those who live under God's law, but it is absolutely contrary to God's justice that those who are disobedient and unworthy of the blessings of this system of law shall enjoy its benefits. That would be like casting pearls before swine. And again, it is meet that my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. should have a house built in which to live and translate. The Lord has a tremendous amount of work for his leaders to accomplish, and he therefore desires to have a house constructed so that Joseph can proceed with the translation of the scriptures as soon as possible. However, because the church was so new and the people were lacking in resources, the upstairs of the Whitney store was arranged so that Joseph and Emma could have exclusive use of it for their home during the next five months. And again, it is meet that my servant Sidney Rigdon should live as seemeth him good, inasmuch as he keepeth my commandments. Sidney Rigdon is to arrange his affairs in whatever way seem most convenient, but the church will be responsible for his necessities as long as he obeys the commandments and performs the service to which he has been assigned. And again, I have called my servant Edward Partridge, and I give a commandment that he should be appointed by the voice of the church and ordained a bishop unto the church to leave his merchandise and to spend all his time in the labors of the church Edward Partridge is to be approved by the sustaining vote of the church so he can serve as presiding bishop of the church. There were no bishops over wards until the Nauvoo period, but Edward Partridge is to dispose of his business as a hatter in Plainsville, Ohio, and spend all of his time in serving as a bishop over the church. 
This means the church will take over the responsibility of his temporal needs so he can perform this service. To see to all things as it shall be appointed unto him in my laws, in the day that I shall give them. Edward Partridge will have the responsibility of caring for the temporal affairs of the church and administer the new law as it is revealed to the members of the church and this because his heart is pure before me. For he is like unto Nathanael of old, in whom there is no guile. The Lord said this great trust is being vested in the new bishop because his heart is pure and without a spirit of covetousness or guile. In this respect he is like Nathanael in the days of Christ, who was without guile. These words are given unto you, and they are pure before me. Wherefore, beware how you hold them, for they are to be answered upon your souls in the day of judgment. Even so. Amen. The Lord is very strict in sharing these principles of government and economics with his saints. He will hold the elders of the church immediately accountable for the manner in which they administer this law. Section 42 Introduction. In section 42, the Lord sets forth the law of consecration. This doctrine has frequently been confused with communism. In fact, it is often referred to as Christian communism. This is the result of a serious misinterpretation of a statement in the book of Acts, which says, quote, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. This is in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is interpreted to mean that the early Christians pooled their property, and that is how they had everything in common. However, in the very next chapter, which is the fifth chapter of Acts, Peter explains that they did not pool their property. They pooled their problems, not their property. Each member of the church considered himself a steward of God, and he looked upon his property as a sacred stewardship. The idea was to cultivate and develop one's property or stewardship with great diligence so as to have a surplus at the end of the season to turn over to the apostles and thereby help the poor. This is the whole meaning of the parable of the talents in Matthew twenty-five fifteen to 30 and the parable of the pounds in Luke nineteen twelve to 27. In both cases, the servants were given a stewardship to be enhanced or developed. Those who were slothful had their stipend taken away and given to those who were more proficient. The marvelous thing about the law of consecration was the fact that before long, God's people would have no poor among them. Enoch accomplished this in his day, and this is described in Moses chapter 7, verse 18. Every family had a home, employment, and security in case of an emergency. As a people, they soon became rich. When Joseph arrived in Kirtland, he discovered that a number of the Campbellites had been experimenting with Christian communism and pooling their property. 
Joseph learned that it was Sidney Rigdon who had set up the Campbellite family system of Christian communism before he became converted to the church. The main body of those who were practicing this Christian communism were living on the Morley Farm. However, there were many complaints by those on the Morley Farm who had joined the church but were trying to live Christian communism. For example, Joseph learned that recently a man had picked up an attractive watch lying on the dresser and put it in his pocket because all property belonged to anyone in the family, and you took whatever you wanted. When the previous possessor of the watch wanted it back, the man who took it said he didn't have it anymore. He had sold it. Of course, the man who took the watch was told you can't sell family property, and a warm dispute erupted. When Joseph Smith learned about it, he agreed to approach the Lord and learn what the ancient Christians meant by having things in common. It was February the 9th, 1831, when twelve elders solemnly watched Joseph as he went into his revelatory mode to receive the word of the Lord. Sidney Rigdon undertook to record the revelation. The interesting thing about this revelation is the fact that the Lord took a lot of time to carefully describe the qualities of a faithful member of the church before he got around to describing the law of consecration. In fact, the Lord knew the law of consecration only works for saints who are obeying the whole law of the gospel. Here is the text of section 42. Hearken, O ye elders of my church, who have assembled yourselves together in my name, even Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, inasmuch as ye believe on my name and keep my commandments. The Savior begins by identifying the central core of the church as Jesus Christ, and the strength of the church is faithfulness of those who have come unto Christ and who keep the commandments. Again I say unto you, Hearken, and hear, and obey the law which I shall give unto you. The secret of success under the law of consecration is primarily obedience to the law as Jesus has revealed it. For verily I say, As ye have assembled yourselves together, according to the commandment wherewith I commanded you, and are agreed as touching this one thing, and have asked the Father in my name, even so ye shall receive. Jesus commends the twelve elders who have convened together as the Lord commanded and are earnestly and unitedly seeking to know how they should proceed to govern themselves. The Lord says that when they come to him in this manner, they may expect an answer. Behold, verily I say unto you, I give unto you this first commandment, that ye shall go forth in my name, every one of you, excepting my servants, Joseph Smith, Jr., and Sidney Rigdon. It is interesting that the Savior says the foremost commandments above all other commandments is to do missionary work so the church will have the strength to survive. There are only two people who are excused from this important labor, and that is Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, who have other important functions to perform. And I give unto them a commandment that they shall go forth for a little season, and it shall be given by the power of the Spirit when they shall return. 
However, even Joseph and Sidney will go forth to convert and bear testimony for a little season, but the Spirit will tell them when to return. And ye shall go forth in the power of my Spirit, preaching my gospel two by two in my name, lifting up your voices as with the sound of a trump, declaring my word like unto angels of God. But as for the body of the priesthood, they shall go forth with zeal by the power of the Spirit. They are not to wander off as single missionaries, but always go two by two. The Lord wants them to get the power of the Spirit so that they can go abroad like angels of God, declaring the gospel with the sound of a trump. And ye shall go forth baptizing with water, saying, Repent ye, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from this place ye shall go forth into the regions westward. And inasmuch as ye shall find them that will receive you, ye shall build up my church in every region. From Kirtland the missionaries are to travel westward, preaching and organizing branches of the church as they go. Until the time shall come, when it shall be revealed unto you from on high, when the city of the new Jerusalem shall be prepared, that ye may be gathered in one, that ye may be my people, and I will be your God. As they make their way westward, the Lord has an exciting revelation for them. He is going to tell them where the glorious new Jerusalem is to be built. Satan pretended to know where the great city would be built, and in section 28, we learned that Hiram Page was listening to someone with a familiar spirit, which was deceiving him by claiming to know where the New Jerusalem would be located. Now the Lord promises that he will reveal where it will actually be built. This was an exciting promise. And again I say unto you that my servant Edward Partridge shall stand in the office whereunto I have appointed him. And it shall come to pass that if he transgress, another shall be appointed in his stead. Even so. Amen. Edward Partridge does not know exactly what a bishop's role will be under the law of consecration, but the Lord warns him to get ready to perform the duties which will be revealed to him. This will be one of the most important offices in the entire church, and the Lord warns him that if he falters and transgresses, another will be appointed in his stead. Again I say unto you, that it shall not be given to any one to go forth to preach my gospel or to build up my church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority. And it is known to the church that he has authority, and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church. The Lord now lays down the strict requirements for anyone going forth as a missionary. First of all, he must be ordained by someone who is well known in the church, and who has the priesthood authority to send forth missionaries to preach the gospel. And again, the elders, priests, and teachers of this church shall teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in the which is the fullness of the gospel. Those who serve as missionaries or teachers in the kingdom must take their doctrine from the Bible and the Book of Mormon, which contain the fullness of the gospel. And they shall observe the covenants and church articles to do them. And these shall be their teachings, as they shall be directed by the Spirit. 
They must also live the principles of the gospel and keep the covenants they have made with the Lord. When they undertake to teach the gospel, they shall let the Spirit guide them. And the Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. And if ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. But now comes an interesting restriction on those who are preaching the gospel. It says they shall preach by the Spirit. But if they receive not the Spirit, they shall not teach. While I was on a mission in England, I learned the importance of this principle. And all this ye shall observe to do as I have commanded concerning your teaching, until the fullness of my scriptures is given. And as ye shall lift up your voices by the Comforter, ye shall speak and prophesy as seemeth me good. For behold, the Comforter knoweth all things, and beareth record of the Father and of the Son. In these verses the Lord is commanding the elders to go forth and preach the word as the Spirit guides them. The Bible and the Book of Mormon are to be their principal scriptural guides until the newly revised scriptures are available. These will include many new and exciting doctrines, particularly the Book of Moses, the Book of Enoch, and the writings of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. And now, behold, I speak unto the church, Thou shalt not kill, and he that kills shall not have forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. And again I say, Thou shalt not kill, but he that killeth shall die. In itemizing the Ten Commandments as guidelines to the church, it is interesting that the Lord begins with the problem of deliberate murder. As this offense spreads among the people as it did among the Jaredites, Nephites, and Lamanites, the structure of a society, even a whole civilization, collapses. Notice that this sin is not to be forgiven by society, just as it will not be forgiven in the world to come. It is a sin which should be punished by society, and the punishment should be by executing the guilty person. Notice that the church does not have this responsibility. It is the duty of those administering the civil law to perform the execution. Thou shalt not steal, and he that stealeth and will not repent shall be cast out. Thou shalt not lie, he that lieth and will not repent shall be cast out. Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. The Lord now lists many of the common offenses for which offenders will not be allowed to remain in the church. And he that looketh upon a woman to lust after her shall deny the faith, and shall not have the spirit. And if he repents not, he shall be cast out. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and he that committeth adultery and repenteth not shall be cast out. But he that has committed adultery, and repents with all his heart, and forsaketh it, and doeth it no more, thou shalt forgive. But if he doeth it again, he shall not be forgiven, but shall be cast out. Since the Lord has always considered adultery one of the most serious sins, it is interesting that the Lord makes allowance for this type of sinner to have one chance to repent and be forgiven. But if he or she commits adultery again, 
It is the end of that individual as far as the church is concerned. Thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. One of the greatest threats to a refined Zion society is tale-bearing or gossip. The Lord leaves no doubt how he feels concerning those who bear false witness against their neighbors and thereby destroy their character. Thou knowest my laws concerning these things are given in my scriptures. He that sinneth and repenteth not shall be cast out. The Lord is well aware that the conduct which he categorizes as sins are listed in the scriptures. The members of the church which consistently violate these commandments are to be excommunicated. If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me and keep all my commandments. At this point, the Lord begins to emphasize the highlights of the law of consecration. The Lord wants his people to have a conscious sensitivity for the needs of the poor and to be generous with them in providing the necessities of life. This is not done by merely goodwill offerings. And behold, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support that which thou hast to impart unto them, with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. Anyone wanting to participate in the law of consecration begins by assigning all of his property to the bishop of the church and certifying the transfer with a sacred legal deed which cannot be broken. The bishop then counsels with the head of each household to determine what his assignment should be in the kingdom. The bishop also counsels with the head of the household to decide how much the bishop should make available to him so that he can fulfill his stewardship. The bishop may give the new steward more financial assistance than he originally contributed. On the other hand, the bishop may retain a portion of the consecration of the householder in order to help a newcomer or poorer person who will need help in order to get his stewardship going. Whatever the bishop decides to convey back to the householder must be by a deed that cannot be broken. As we shall see later, the bishop's task of administering the law of consecration fairly and equitably is a challenging task indeed. Perhaps this is an appropriate place to listen to Joseph Smith as he explains how a person should enter the law of consecration. Joseph said, The matter of consecration must be done by the mutual consent of both parties. For to give the bishop power to say how much every man shall have and he be compelled to comply with the bishop's judgment is giving the bishop more power than a king. And upon the other hand, to let every man say how much he needs and the bishop be compelled to comply with his judgment is to throw Zion into confusion and make a slave of the bishop. The fact is there must be a balance or equilibrium of power between the bishop and the people, and thus harmony and goodwill may be preserved among you. Joseph continues, Therefore, these persons consecrating property to the bishop in Zion and then receiving an inheritance back must reasonably show the bishop that they need as much as they claim. But in case the two parties cannot come to a mutual agreement, the bishop is to have nothing to do about receiving such consecrations 
and the case must be laid before the Council of Twelve High Priests. This is quoted from the History of the Church, Volume 1, pages 364 and 5. And inasmuch as ye impart of your substance unto the poor, ye will do it unto me. And they shall be laid before the bishop of my church and his counselors, two of the elders or high priests, such as he shall appoint or has appointed and set apart for that purpose. The Lord wants the saints to understand that consecrating their property to the bishop is consecrating their property to the Lord. The consecrating should therefore be negotiated with the entire bishopric, including the two counselors. And it shall come to pass that after they are laid before the bishop of my church, and after that he has received these testimonies concerning the consecration of the properties of my church, that they cannot be taken from the church, agreeable to my commandments. Every man shall be made accountable unto me, a steward over his own property, or that which he has received by consecration, as much as is sufficient for himself and family. Whatever the bishop retains from any householder's consecration becomes the property of the church. Should the householder leave the church, he cannot lay claim to any surplus donation which he deeded to the church. And again, if there shall be properties in the hands of the church or any individuals of it, more than is necessary for their support after this first consecration, which is a residue to be consecrated unto the bishop, it shall be kept to administer to those who have not, from time to time, that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants. Each steward shall be accountable for his stewardship, and at the end of the season all of the surplus over and above the needs of the steward will be turned over to the bishop for distribution to those in need. This principle also allows a hard-pressed steward who needs help to keep his stewardship going can petition the bishop for whatever he needs, and if his needs are just, the request will be granted. Everything over and above what is needed for this person's stewardship shall remain in the possession of the bishop to be used in providing for the poor and help in setting up stewardships for those who do not as yet have one. Therefore the residue shall be kept in my storehouse to administer to the poor and the needy, as shall be appointed by the high council of the church and the bishop and his council. Once the bishop has made his allocations, he should retain in the church storehouse all of the resources which are left over. And for the purpose of purchasing lands for the public benefit of the church, and building houses of worship, and building up of the new Jerusalem which is hereafter to be revealed, that my covenant people may be gathered in one in that day when I shall come to my temple. And this I do for the salvation of my people. The distribution of the resources in the church storehouse is administered by the bishop and the high council. They can then decide when it is prudent to purchase lands for the benefit of the church or build chapels, schools, or other needed structures. And this will include the structures in the New Jerusalem when it begins to be built. And it shall come to pass that he that sinneth and repenteth not shall be cast out of the church. 
and shall not receive again that which he has consecrated unto the poor and the needy of my church, or in other words, unto me. After the law of consecration has been in operation for a while, every member will realize what choice blessings it is to participate in the law of consecration. However, any stewards who are not valiant or who violate the Lord's commandments shall be cast out if they do not immediately repent. And as we have already mentioned, if they leave the church or are excommunicated, they cannot lay claim to any of their original consecration, which was allocated for the poor and the use of the church. For inasmuch as ye do it unto the least of these, ye do it unto me. The Lord reminds all those who enter the law of consecration that inasmuch as they did it for the benefit of the least of their brethren, they did it unto the Lord. For it shall come to pass, that which I spake by the mouths of my prophets shall be fulfilled. For I will consecrate of the riches of those who embrace my gospel among the Gentiles, unto the poor of my people who are of the house of Israel. The Lord is expecting that many of the wealthy Gentiles who join the church will bring their wealth to the bishop, and much of it will be retained by the bishop to help the poor. Now the Lord has something to say about the dress and appearance of the saints. He says, And again, thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. Let all thy garments be plain, and their beauty the beauty of the work of thine own hands. The Lord next describes some of the qualities and characteristics of those who enter this new order. Among other things, he says, And let all things be done in cleanliness before me. Thou shalt not be idle, for he that is idle shall not eat the bread nor wear the garments of the laborer. The Lord now describes how the sick and afflicted should be dealt with. And whosoever among you are sick, and have not faith to be healed, but believe, shall be nourished with all tenderness, with herbs and mild food, and that not by the hand of an enemy. And the elders of the church, two or more, shall be called, and shall pray for and lay their hands upon them in my name. And if they die, they shall die unto me. And if they live, they shall live unto me. The Lord now describes the loving, compassionate spirit of an ideal church community. Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. And it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. And they that die not in me, woe unto them, for their death is bitter. And again, it shall come to pass that he that hath faith in me to be healed, and is not appointed unto death, shall be healed. He who hath faith to see shall see, He who hath faith to hear shall hear. The lame who hath faith to leap shall leap. The Lord knows that not all will have faith to be healed. Concerning these, he says, the valiant members of the church should help these bear their infirmities. And they who have not faith to do these things but believe in me have power to become my sons. And inasmuch as they break not my laws, 
thou shalt bear their infirmities. The Lord is anxious that the saints serve honorably and efficiently in their various stewardships. He says, Thou shalt stand in the place of thy stewardship. The Lord cautions against the borrowing of clothing, tools, or other articles, and then forgetting to take them back or pay for them. The Lord says he prefers the following policy. Thou shalt not take thy brother's garment. Thou shalt pay for that which thou shalt receive of thy brother. And if thou obtainest more than that which would be for thy support, thou shalt give it unto my storehouse, that all things may be done according to that which I have said. We should really pay attention to the next verse. Thou shalt ask, and my scriptures shall be given as I have appointed, and they shall be preserved in safety. A little over a year later, the Lord is going to blister the whole church by declaring that the members are under condemnation because they have not been diligent in studying the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon. Now, this is found in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verses 54 to 57. Therefore, the Lord says he will not reveal the rest of the Book of Mormon and two-thirds of the gold plates which have not yet been translated. This includes the plates of Laban, which consisted of the entire Old Testament preserved by Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. Also, the prophetic history of the world recorded by the brother of Jared. President Ezra Taft Benson prayed that this condemnation might be removed from the church so that we could receive these precious scriptures. But the Lord indicated to him that the entire church must prove worthy of these scriptures before they will be revealed. This is in the Ensign Magazine for May 1986, pages 77 to 78. The Lord said there are great treasures in the scriptures, but we have not appreciated what we have already received. For example, he says we have taken the Book of Mormon too lightly. That's in the Doctrine and Covenants 84, verses 54 to 58. One of the reasons Wendell Noble and I put together a commentary on each verse of the Book of Mormon was to encourage the saints to study these exciting scriptures more diligently. We called it the treasures from the Book of Mormon. To try to facilitate the study of the Book of Mormon, we recorded this commentary on cassette tapes. If we listened to at least one tape per week, it would emphasize that we earnestly desire the Lord to let us have these scriptures which have been held back for over 175 years. Now back to our history. Since the prophet was revising the entire Old and New Testament, the missionaries were anxious to obtain these revisions as fast as they were available. But the Lord said, and it is expedient that thou shouldst hold thy peace concerning them, and not teach them until ye have received them in full. And I give unto you a commandment, that then ye shall teach them unto all men, for they shall be taught unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. The Lord said that once Joseph had completed the revision of the Bible, the elders of Israel should take advantage of all the new principles set forth therein and teach them to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Unfortunately, this work was never quite completed before the prophet's death. 
therefore it has never been published by the church. Emma Smith retained the unfinished manuscript, and it has been published in its unfinished form by the reorganized church. Thou shalt take the things which thou hast received, which have been given unto thee in my scriptures for a law, to be my law to govern my church. The supreme value of the scriptures is that they contain the authorized commandments of the Lord. And he that doeth according to these things shall be saved, and he that doeth them not shall be damned if he so continue. Until the revision of the scriptures is completed, the elders should teach those doctrines which have been approved by the church. Obedience to these principles will bring salvation to those who obey them, but they will bring damnation to those who deliberately disobey or ignore them. If thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. The Lord has great qualities of additional gospel knowledge to reveal to the saints in modern times, and he urges them to ask for this knowledge that they might understand the mysteries and peaceable things which provide a more comprehensive understanding of the gospel. Thou shalt ask, and it shall be revealed unto you in mine own due time, where the new Jerusalem shall be built. As we mentioned earlier, the saints were extremely anxious to know where the new Jerusalem would be located. Now the Lord assures this group of twelve elders and the prophet that the location of the new Jerusalem will soon be revealed. And behold, it shall come to pass that my servants shall be sent forth to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south, when the New Jerusalem is established, a virtual army of missionaries will go out in every direction to preach the gospel. And even now, let him that goeth to the east teach them that shall be converted to flee to the west, and this in consequence of that which is coming on the earth, and of secret combinations. However, for the time being, the missionaries who go east must encourage the saints to move west. The Lord said this is for their safety and because vicious secret combinations are rising up to destroy the saints. Behold, thou shalt observe all these things, and great shall be thy reward. For unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but unto the world it is not given to know them. Ye shall observe the laws which ye have received, and be faithful. Meanwhile, the Lord admonishes the saints to follow these instructions because he is going to reveal certain precious mysteries to them which will not be revealed to the people of the world. And ye shall hereafter receive church covenants, such as shall be sufficient to establish you both here and in the new Jerusalem. At this point, the Lord promises to share with the saints certain, quote, church covenants, unquote, which will be a great blessing for the saints, both for the present and after they build the new Jerusalem. This is undoubtedly referring to temple covenants, which were still at that time beyond the capacity of the church members. Therefore, he that lacketh wisdom, let him ask of me, and I will give him liberally, and upbraid him not, 
Lift up your hearts and rejoice, for unto you the kingdom, or in other words, the keys of the church have been given. Even so. Amen. The Lord urges the members of the church to constantly seek new knowledge because he has much to reveal to them. The most important thing is that they already have the keys. The priests and teachers shall have their stewardships, even as the members. The Lord said some of the younger converts who were not heads of households but had been ordained teachers and priests were authorized to have stewardships given to them. And the elders or high priests who are appointed to assist the bishop as counselors in all things are to have their families supported out of the property which is consecrated to the bishop for the good of the poor and for other purposes as before mentioned. Or they are to receive a just remuneration for all their services, either a stewardship or otherwise, as may be thought best or decided by the counselors and bishop. Full-time personnel who served as administrators at the headquarters of the church were to have their family supported out of church funds. However, if it would be to the advantage of the church, they should be given stewardships. It is up to the bishop and his counselors to decide. And the bishop also shall receive his support or a just remuneration for all his services in the church. The Lord said the bishop should be included among the full-time officers who would be compensated for his services. Behold, verily I say unto you, that whatever persons among you, having put away their companions for the cause of fornication, or in other words, if they shall testify before you in all lowliness of heart that this is the case, ye shall not cast them out from among you, but if ye shall find that any persons have left their companions for the sake of adultery, and they themselves are the offenders, and their companions are living, they shall be cast out from among you. There were a few single persons in Kirtland, and the leaders of the church were instructed to see if they had put away their spouses because of adultery, or if they themselves had been cast away because of adultery. And again I say unto you, that ye shall be watchful and careful with all inquiry, that ye receive none such among you if they are married. The leaders of the church were also to be circumspect in making inquiry concerning the moral integrity of the members. The fact that they may have married to cover their past moral offenses would not erase their sins until the authorities had dealt with them. And if they are not married, they shall repent of all their sins, or ye shall not receive them. Immoral people who are not married but guilty of sin shall sincerely repent or be cast out. And again, every person who belongeth to this church of Christ shall observe to keep all the commandments and covenants of the church. What the Lord is emphasizing is the fact that all the members of the church are expected to live strictly within the commandments and covenants of the church. And it shall come to pass that if any persons among you shall kill, they shall be delivered up and dealt with according to the laws of the land. For remember that he hath no forgiveness, and it shall be proved according to the laws of the land. Now we come to a list of offenses which are not only offenses against the Lord, 
but constitute crimes against society. The Lord wants to clarify the fact that the church is not responsible for punishing a criminal other than severing them from the church if they are found guilty. The church is not trying to assume the task of the officers of the civil government. Of course, the church will take appropriate action in any cases involving moral turpitude. These next few verses describe how each case should be handled. And if any man or woman shall commit adultery, he or she shall be tried before two elders of the church or more. And every word shall be established against him or her by two witnesses of the church, and not of the enemy. But if there are more than two witnesses, it is better. But he or she shall be condemned by the mouth of two witnesses. And the elders shall lay the case before the church, and the church shall lift up their hands against him or her, that they may be dealt with according to the law of God. And if it can be, it is necessary that the bishop be present also. Now the revelation returns to criminal cases where the church should refer the matter to the officers of the law. And thus ye shall do in all cases which shall come before you. And if a man or woman shall rob, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of the land. And if he or she shall steal, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of the land. And if he or she shall lie, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of the land. And if he or she do any manner of iniquity, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law, even that of God. Now the revelation turns to the disputes between church members. Note that disagreements should be settled by individuals themselves wherever possible. If not, the Lord describes how to proceed. And if thy brother or sister offend thee, thou shalt take him or her between him or her and thee alone. And if he or she confess, thou shalt be reconciled. And if he or she confess not, thou shalt deliver him or her up unto the church, not to the members, but to the elders. And it shall be done in a meeting, and that not before the world. And if thy brother or sister offend many, he or she shall be chastened before many. And if any one offend openly, he or she shall be rebuked openly, that he or she may be ashamed. And if he or she confess not, he or she shall be delivered up unto the law of God. If any shall offend in secret, he or she shall be rebuked in secret, that he or she may have opportunity to confess in secret to him or her, whom he or she has offended, and to God, that the church may not speak reproachfully of him or her. And thus shall ye conduct in all things. We observe that the purpose of these hearings and proceedings is to gain a confession and reconciliation with those who have been offended. Hearings are to be limited to the few people who are directly involved in the dispute, unless the offender has caused resentment and bitter feelings among a large number of people. In that case, the bishop may decide to hold the hearing in the presence of many so they can feel reconciled toward the repentant member. Notice that the main reason for keeping the hearing limited in the first place 
is so that the reputation of the repentant member will not be damaged unnecessarily. Section 43, Introduction By February 1851, a short time after Joseph had arrived in Kirtland, a woman by the name of Hubble attracted a great deal of attention. Ezra Booth describes what happened. Quote, A female professing to be a prophetess made her appearance in Kirtland and ingratiated herself into the esteem and favor of some of the elders that they received her as a person commissioned to act as a conspicuous part in Mormonizing the world. Rigdon and some others gave her the right hand of fellowship and literally saluted her with what they called the kiss of charity. But Joseph Smith declared her an impostor, and she returned to the place from which she came. Her visit, however, made a deep impression on the minds of many, and the barbed arrow that she left in the hearts of some is not yet eradicated, period, unquote. And that's from the Revelations of the Prophet Joseph Smith by Lyndon W. Cook, pages 61 to 62. Since Joseph considered the woman an impostor, while others were impressed by her sanctimonious spirit, the prophet approached the Lord during the conference in early February 1838. Here is the message which came from the Lord. O hearken, ye elders of my church, and give ear to the words which I shall speak unto you. For behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye have received a commandment for a law unto my church, through him whom I have appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations from my hand. The Lord addressed the elders of the church and reminded them that they had already received a commandment as to the person who is allowed to transmit the will of the Lord to them. And this ye shall know assuredly, that there is none other appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations until he be taken, if he abide in me. The Lord makes it very clear that there is none other than Joseph Smith authorized to speak for him until he be taken, if he abide in me. But verily, verily, I say unto you, that none else shall be appointed unto this gift, except it be through him. For if it be taken from him, he shall not have power except to appoint another in his stead. Then the Lord makes it clear that the last act of a prophet who fails to abide in the Lord will be to announce his successor. We assume that a person dismissed by the Lord would not be likely to dare to disobey God's commandment to name his successor. It is interesting that the Lord has talked about replacing unworthy servants in two sections. This one and the earlier section, 42, verse 10. And this shall be a law unto you, that ye receive not the teachings of any that shall come before you as revelations or commandments. And this I give unto you, that you may not be deceived, that you may know they are not of me. The Lord wants his elders to know that he doesn't want them to accept any doctrine unless it comes through his authorized servants. People who claim they are revelators but do not preach through God's authorized servants are to be rejected. So much for Mrs. Hubble. For verily I say unto you, that he that is ordained of me shall come in at the gate and be ordained as I have told you before to teach those revelations which you have received 
and shall receive through him whom I have appointed. The Lord says his servants will be those who come in at the gate as ordained ministers of the gospel, who will teach what the Lord's prophet has authorized. And now behold, I give unto you a commandment, that when ye are assembled together, ye shall instruct and edify each other, that ye may know how to act and direct my church, how to act upon the points of my law and commandments which I have given. The Lord therefore gives his servants a commandment, that they convene together and teach one another the doctrines that have been revealed so that they will know how to govern the church and be familiar with the doctrines they should be teaching. And thus ye shall become instructed in the law of my church and be sanctified by that which ye have received. And ye shall bind yourselves to act in all holiness before me. It is important that the servants of the Lord be thoroughly familiar with the law which he gave them in the previous section and that they covenant with one another to live this law in holiness before the Lord. That inasmuch as ye do this, glory shall be added to the kingdom which ye have received. Inasmuch as ye do it not, it shall be taken, even that which ye have received. Obedience to God's law will add glory to the restored kingdom, but those who deviate from the pattern of life laid down by the Lord will detract from its glory, and the disobedient will wander away and lose the very things God has revealed for the gospel plan of life. Purge ye out the iniquity which is among you. Sanctify yourselves before me. We do not think of our leaders becoming ensnared in conduct which is offensive to the Lord, but he knows that every descendant of Adam constantly feels the temptations of the adversary and must purge his life of every element of iniquity which springs up within him. And if ye desire the glories of the kingdom, appoint ye my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and uphold him before me by the prayer of faith, and again I say unto you, that if ye desire the mysteries of the kingdom, provide for him food and raiment, and whatsoever thing he needeth to accomplish the work wherewith I have commanded him. Now the Lord challenges those men who are in leadership positions, because if they want the hidden treasures in the scriptures, they must diligently support Joseph, so that he has the time and opportunity to do the translating and receive the glorious revelations that await the saints if they will give Joseph the support he needs to accomplish this divine assignment. And if ye do it not, he shall remain unto them that have received him, that I may reserve unto myself a pure people before me. He warns these men, a number of whom will lose their positions in the church, that if they do not help Joseph fulfill his calling, then he will no longer remain with them, but will associate himself with those who earnestly assist him in fulfilling his calling. Again I say, hearken, ye elders of my church, whom I have appointed. Ye are not sent forth to be taught, but to teach the children of men the things which I have put into your hands by the power of my Spirit. This is a provocative command. The Lord has so few who will carry with them a deep and abiding knowledge of the entire gospel plan 
The most proficient defender of the gospel I ever knew was Elder John A. Widsow of the Council of the Twelve. He had been president of two universities, the author of numerous gospel books, and he was a world leader in the science of chemistry. But always he was diligently developing in his mind the things which the Spirit gave him to increase his capacity to sharpen his ability to share the gospel with others. As a 17-year-old missionary, Elder Witzel became my ideal of a truly great student and gospel teacher. How often we hear many otherwise good members of the church excuse their lack of knowledge of the gospel by shaking their heads and saying, Oh, I only wish I had the time. The Lord might say, You had the time for three hours of TV last Saturday. (laughs) Ye are to be taught from on high. Sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be endowed with power that ye may give even as I have spoken. The truly great teachers of the gospel are those who have learned how to drain great quantities of power from the Spirit and teach the gospel with the tongue of an angel. And that's described by Nephi in Second Nephi chapter 31, verses 13 and 14. Hearken ye, for behold, the great day of the Lord is nigh at hand. For the day cometh, that the Lord shall utter his voice out of heaven. The heavens shall shake, and the earth shall tremble, and the trump of God shall sound both long and loud, and shall say to the sleeping nations, Ye saints, arise and live. Ye sinners, stay and sleep, until I shall call again. The Lord already knows that in terms of God's time, his second coming is very near. The gospel has been restored to awaken the sleeping nations. But to the sinners who will not listen, God has another call of awakening that will arouse them into a state of shocked hysteria. Wherefore, gird up your loins, lest ye be found among the wicked. Lift up your voices, and spare not. Call upon the nations to repent, both old and young, both bond and free, saying, Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. The Lord even gives his servants an example of the message they should be trumpeting to the sinful multitudes of humanity. The Lord then sets forth a mighty challenge at the conclusion of his suggested speech. For if I, who am a man, do lift up my voice and call upon you to repent, and ye hate me, what will ye say when the day cometh when the thunders shall utter their voices from the ends of the earth, speaking to the ears of all that live, saying, Repent, and prepare for the great day of the Lord. Yea, and again, when the lightnings shall streak forth from the east unto the west, and shall utter forth their voices unto all that live, and make the ears of all tingle that hear, saying these words, Repent ye, for the great day of the Lord is come. Having extolled the kind of speech he wants his servants to proclaim, the Lord now gives one of his own speeches. He says, And again, the Lord shall utter his voice out of heaven, saying, Hearken, O ye nations of the earth, and hear the words of that God who made you. O ye nations of the earth, 
How often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants, and by the ministering of angels, and by mine own voice, and by the voice of thunderings, and by the voice of lightnings, and by the voice of tempests, and by the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms, and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind, and by the great sound of a trump, and by the voice of judgment, and by the voice of mercy all the day long, and by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life, and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but ye would not. Many people wonder why the Lord waits so long before his wrath rolls forth into a tidal wave against the grossly wicked. In several scriptures he explains that he must wait until the masses of intelligences which comprise his round of creation are united in their mutual wrath and will sustain our Heavenly Father when his flood of vengeance is unleashed upon the wicked. Abraham wanted God to wreak vengeance on the idolatrous wretches of his day, but the Lord said he had to wait until the cup of wrath was full so that he could be supported and honored in his desolating judgment. And that's in Doctrine and Covenants 29 and 36. God says his power is from below, meaning from those intelligences which love and obey him. And that's in Doctrine and Covenants 63 and 59. He does not act until they are sufficiently aroused to support him. That is when the cup of wrath in these support forces is full. Then he acts. Behold, the day has come when the cup of the wrath of mine indignation is full. Behold, verily I say unto you, that these are the words of the Lord your God. This concludes the Savior's great speech. Therefore he wants his servants to realize what is at stake now that the earth is being warned for the last time. This is the final dispensation that will prepare the world for the second coming, and then the millennium will be ushered in. Wherefore labor ye, labor ye in my vineyard for the last time, for the last time, Call upon the inhabitants of the earth, for in mine own due time will I come upon the earth in judgment, and my people shall be redeemed, and shall reign with me on earth. For the great millennium, of which I have spoken by the mouth of my servant, shall come, for Satan shall be bound, and when he is loosed again, he shall only reign for a little season, and then cometh the end of the earth. Then comes the great judgment, which gives glory and exaltation to the righteous in an instant, but the wicked will go away into the most painful and agonizing punishment until they have paid the uttermost farthing for their sins. This is why the call to all mankind to repent is so important. And he that liveth in righteousness shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and the earth shall pass away so as by fire and the wicked shall go away into unquenchable fire, and their end no man knoweth on earth, nor ever shall know until they come before me in judgment. The solemnity of the Savior's message is so vividly clear in this section when he says, 
hearken ye to these words. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Treasure these things up in your hearts, and let the solemnities of eternity rest upon your minds. Be sober, keep all my commandments, even so. Amen. Section 44. Introduction. The Lord watched Joseph Smith and the rapidly growing dimensions of the church and warned by mid-February that there were extremely rough roads ahead. Therefore, the Lord gave Joseph Smith this revelation so the saints could be assembled early in June of 1831 and be carefully instructed as to the best way to meet the emergencies that would arise in the near future. Here is the text of section 44. Behold, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, it is expedient in me that the elders of my church should be called together, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, by letter or some other way. The concern of the Lord for the welfare of the saints is reflected in his statement that it is, quote, expedient, unquote, that they be called together from the four points of the compass. All of the elders were to be summoned either by letter or messenger. And it shall come to pass that inasmuch as they are faithful and exercise faith in me, I will pour out my Spirit upon them in the day that they assemble themselves together. The Lord declares that if they are faithful in responding to this emergency call, he will pour out his Spirit upon them beginning with the first day they assemble together. And it shall come to pass that they shall go forth into the regions round about and preach repentance unto the people. In the meantime, the elders and members of the church are to do missionary work in all the regions round about. The Lord wants the whole region to be called to repentance and have as many as possible attend the conference where they can receive instructions from the prophet. And many shall be converted, insomuch that ye shall obtain power to organize yourselves according to the laws of man. The Lord promises that as a result of this campaign, many will be converted. This literally came to pass. The membership of the tiny church in Kirtland and the vicinity exploded to more than 2,000 souls by the time the conference convened in early June. That your enemies may not have power over you, that you may be preserved in all things, that you may be enabled to keep my laws, that every bond may be broken wherewith the enemy seeketh to destroy my people. The Lord knew that this massive conversion would arouse bitter opposition among the other churches, and especially among the ministers who saw their flocks being depleted. Most of the clergy had access to newspapers, and it would not be long before lies and various kinds of persecution of the church would be pouring out from the press and flowing down from the pulpits. At the conference, the Lord promised to set the wheels in motion to help the saints escape from the secret combination being concocted by some of their most bitter enemies. Behold, I say unto you, that ye must visit the poor and the needy and administer to their relief, that they may be kept until all things may be done according to my law which ye have received. Amen. 
Nevertheless, the Lord does not want the saints to become so occupied with missionary work and preparing for the conference that they neglect the poor and the needy. The members of the church must be organized so that they can care for one another in an orderly manner. Therefore, they must organize themselves according to the principles of God's law, which was carefully laid out by the Lord in section 42. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lecture recordings while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.